I'm Steve Lascalzo, and this is The Way. Welcome to This is The Way podcast's first reaction and discussion episode of The Mandalorian Season 3. We're up to Chapter 17, and the title is The Apostate. It's a short episode, and that's okay, but my initial excitement over starting a new season colored my first impression podcast a little bit, I think. Now that I've had a couple watches, time to reflect, it's one of the weaker episodes. I think a lot of that has to do with the catch-up needed because of the Book of Boba Fett appearances, the length of the episode, too. And at this point, there are some low stakes. Din Djarin doesn't have to go on this quest. It's not life or death. Grief Karga actually offers him land and a job, and he turns it down. Well, there's a lot for me to talk about, so let's get the episode started. This is the way. This is the way. This is the way. December 18th, 2020. Season 2, Episode 8, Chapter 16, The Rescue, and Luke Skywalker. That was the last episode of this show. And at that time, I still had a couple co-hosts named Tim and Andy. Boy. That was a long time ago. Long time. A long time. The thumbnail description and full episode description are the same and read The Mandalorian Begins an Important Journey. Well, I guess so, and I guess we're going to go along with them. The runtime for episode 1, chapter 17, shows up as 38 minutes in parentheses on the Disney Plus show page. If you're a long-time listener, you know I like to go and see exactly how much time you need to watch an episode. Well, the action runs a little less than 32 and a half minutes. From the start, when you press play, the Disney Plus snap, all the way to the credits. But if you skipped the previously on and started at the first sound of new audio, you'd be under the Star Wars and Lucasfilm slate sequences, and that would run you about 31 and a half minutes to the credits. A quick side note about them. The concept art is back. It's one of the parts I loved so much about the first two seasons and also the Book of Boba Fett. I really did miss them in Obi-Wan Kenobi and Andor. You can see original intent in some cases, or at least original direction. The artists do get a scene described to them and then they interpret it. And it's really fascinating to me to see the differences between that and the finished product. Take, for example, the second and third images in this episode, the one after the children of the Watcher are coming out of the cave. There's a beak on the big beast that's coming out of the water. So I think that might be why I called it turtle-like in the First Impressions podcast. You know, the, the mouth of the beast in the live action show is more like a gator. If I ever had a creative writing office as a professional... I definitely want to have all this artwork on the walls. It's, well, all of them are stunning. It's a treasure for the true aficionado. Round here, we start at the end because sometimes you find things in the credits that surprise you, tip you off on a new character's name, and Andor really handed out credits well. There weren't many times we had to wonder who played what. The Book of Boba Fett, though, was awful at credits. It was really hard. The, the names of the characters sometimes didn't appear in the credits, and it was really confusing sometimes. Obi-Wan Kenobi was marginally better, 
the Mandalorian did sometimes leave us in the dark. And I'm sure there are reasons why sometimes people don't want to show up in the credits. But, you know, I don't know all those contractual union rules. Maybe just the actor prefers the cameo to be secret. Or maybe the credit's going to spoil a reveal later in the season. Sometimes the performance actor was listed as the character, but they didn't do the voice. You know, looking at the credits, though, it's one of the things that I've been doing since the beginning, and I'm going to keep on doing it because I think it gives some good clues. Very well. The credits start with the director, so that's where we're going to start, too. Okay, then. Rick Famuyiwa, director of Season 1, Episode 2, Chapter 2's The Child. Season 1, Episode 6, Chapter 6, The Prisoner. And he was also an X-Wing pilot in that episode, Jib Dodger. And he also gave Dave Filoni and Deborah Chow roles in that show, too, if you remember. Season 2, Episode 7, Chapter 15, The Believer. And the Season 3 premiere, The Apostate. And he's going to direct twice more in Season 3. Chapters 23 and 24, the last two of the season. Is he the showrunner? Well, there was an announcement that he was bumped up to executive producer last spring, and John Favreau and Dave Filoni like what he's done. But I see him listed both ways depending on the article. I don't think you can say, honestly, that Family Ewer runs the show. I think it's more like a laissez-faire approach, hands-off from Filoni and Favreau. So that he's running the day-to-day, but if they want something different, Family is going to have to do it their way. I mentioned his directing later in the season, 23 and 24. We know because Disney posted that information through social media, probably press releases that we don't get. So Rachel Morrison will direct Chapter 18 next week, then Lee Isaac Chung Carl Weathers, Peter Ramsey, then Bryce Dallas Howard with Chapter 22 before Rick returns to the chair. Writing credit goes to John Favreau, and though there was talk that Noah Clore might have gotten credit on Season 3, Episode 3, Filoni helping on 4 and 7, StarWarsNews.net says it looks like Favreau is going to get sole credit. Well, that's something we might find out each week from the credits, and that's why I check. Yeah? Good. I'm going to talk a little bit more about the behind-the-scenes people, at least this first episode of the new season. And if things change, I might update it. But I don't want to do this every single week because it's going to make the episodes even longer. Production design is in the hands of Andrew L. Jones and Doug Chang. Chang has a resume with Industrial Light and Magic that stretches way back to 1990. And his Star Wars credentials begin with The Phantom Menace. He worked on Attack of the Clones, The Force Awakens, Rogue One, Solo, The Rise of Skywalker, and he's been with The Mandalorian since the beginning, and also worked on Obi-Wan Kenobi. Jones started with Star Wars on the very first episode of The Mandalorian, and worked on both seasons and every episode of The Book of Boba Fett. Director of Photography is Dean Cundy, and he's been behind the camera for some of the biggest movies and shows. Halloween 1, 2, and 3. Back to the Future 1, 2, and 3. Big Trouble uh, in Little China, one of my favorites. So so was Who Framed Roger Rabbit and Hook, Jurassic Park, Apollo 13, and a couple episodes of The West Wing. All those are standouts to me, but the list is long and full of success if you look at it. 
He also worked on episodes two and four of The Book of Boba Fett, as well as this season three premiere of The Mandalorian. Stunt coordinator is J.J. Dashnaw. He got some screen time in The Book of Boba Fett as the deputy that Cad Bane guns down, but he's been working with Favreau for a very long time. He was on the stunt crew for both Iron Man 1 and 2 and Cowboys and Aliens. He does some second unit directing too, but interestingly, his stunt work in Star Wars seems to have started with The Book of Boba Fett, where he was even a full armor double for Temuera Morrison. Remember, that's Star Wars stunt work. The very first episode of The Mandalorian, Season 1, Episode 1, Chapter 1, the stunts were coordinated by Ryan Watson. Watson's now listed as fight coordinator for Chapter 17. I don't know how the crew stuff works. Is that a demotion? Was he not interested in the main job? Because his assistant on that episode was, the, the first one, was assistant fight coordinator Sam Lowak and the gunfight with the Nikto gang and IG-11 at the end of the pilot episode was great. Last but not least, the music, and I would be utterly remiss if I didn't call attention to Ludwig Gorenson. Way back in that first episode, chapter one, I was not sure about the theme, but by chapter two, I had made ringtones out of it. I love Gorenson's work. He's got an extensive resume that includes things like Black Panther, Creed, Tenet, Venom, even Zen, Grogu, and Dust, the little shorts thing. Uh, on Disney Plus. I guess it's Zen, Grogu, and Dust Bunnies. He's in high demand for music videos from some of the most popular musicians around, and he's the composer for The Mandalorian, the Book of Boba Fett theme. Uh, he's also worked in TV on Atlanta, Happy Endings, and Community. Not bad for a fellow Swede, eh? The score, though, for this episode, and I expect for maybe most of the season, is by Jeff Shirley. So the themes are belong to Gorenson, but Jeff Shirley is a frequent collaborator of Lobig's and also has done a lot of the scoring for The Mandalorian and Book of Boba Fett, and he's going to be handling music for Creed 3, too. I may not mention all of these positions again, but I might if they change. So now I think it's time to move on from the crew and talk characters. This is the way. Listed first, the it guy of the moment, Pedro Pascal, is the Mandalorian Din Djarin, leading both this cast and the Last of Us cast, which is an HBO hit right now. Of course, we don't actually see him in the suit, and I don't know how much he's actually in it this season, but that's been handled very well by Brendan Wayne and Latif Crowder for quite some time. And they finally get top billing. I don't know if you saw my Twitter, but they appear in large print now over the concept art, not just as Mandalorian Double or in the also appearing section of the credits. I think that's great recognition of the work that they've done because it's how they have fought, walked, carried themselves, and Grogu. And even just the way Din Djarin leans on a wall is cooler because of them. Now, Pascal has been in the suit, and we haven't seen his face, but it's not often, and it's even rarer that he has been there and then taken off the helmet for plot reasons, but it is his voice. At one time, I liked Pascal a lot, but then all that Twitter stuff happened, and Disney came down with a double standard for him 
and for Gina Carano. And I think it affected how I feel about him as an actor and a person. I can't help it. Next up is Bo-Katan Kreese, played by Katie Sackhoff. Battlestar Galactica fans know her as Starbuck, but she also voiced Bo-Katan in the Clone Wars and Rebels. Emily Swallow is the armorer. She's done a great job turning a one-dimensional character into something watchable. Carl Weathers as Magistrate. Hi, Magistrate. Grief Karga. The first time I remember seeing Weathers was in one of the Rocky movies, whichever one I ended up seeing first. He's been in tons of things. Tons of things. But he got to direct last season and now this season again. So he's having a great time in Star Wars. Paz Vizsla is voiced by Jon Favreau. But Tate Fletcher is in the suit this time. And he has done a bunch of work in The Mandalorian and The Book of Boba Fett in suits as Paz Vizsla as other things, prosthetics. He was the human in the bar that called out Hey Mando in the pilot's first scene, the opening scene in the bar. Also, according to his IMDb, he was an uncredited fighter in an episode of Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. We worked the case of S.H.I.E.L.D. hasn't classified. The strange, the unknown. The child of the watch earning his helmet in the opening of the third season is Ragnar, played by Wesley Kimmel. Yes, that Kimmel. Amazingly, many were not aware of this, and I think they found out on Kimmel's show on Wednesday night, but we, of course, mentioned it first in our First Impressions podcast that morning. And we also mentioned how Kimmel's nephew was also in WandaVision commercials and was the Tuscan kid who led around Boba Fett in the first couple episodes of the series, the one Boba saved from the Sand Beast. Parvesh China is listed as the Navarro Copper Droid, which I believe is the one that interrupts Karga to tell him the pirates are in town, and he pushes the bust onto IG-11. I was trying to figure out where I knew his face when I looked up who this was. I think it was either Arrested Development or Mythic Quest. IG-11's voice is Taika Watiti's, but I think it's all old dialogue. I think they just reused it. Probably still gets paid. Well, nice for him. Vane is Marty Matulis, and as I mentioned in the First Impressions podcast, he's got a long history of appearing in costume and makeup, but it's the voice, or maybe just his accent, that I really liked here. The Anzellans are voiced by Shirley Henderson, and she, of course... Did the voice for Babu Freak, but if you can't picture her, well, maybe this will help. Moaning Myrtle. Who? Moaning Myrtle. Who's Moaning Myrtle? I'm Moaning Myrtle. Gorian Shard is Nanzo Anozi, and he's got credits in Game of Thrones, Doctor Who, The Sandman, and even as the voice of San Obasani's dad in Ted Lasso, from what I understand. Now, there's a listing for a pirate coxswain, but I don't know who it could be, because I didn't notice any other speaking parts on the shard ship. Maybe it's a deleted scene? Matt Fraser gets credited. I promise I'm almost done, but I want to mention Chris Bartlett as the performance artist behind the Navarro Copper Droid, because that guy's played C-3PO and a bunch of protocol droids in this time working in Star Wars. I... I can't tell you how many times that guy's name has showed up in the credits. There are more than a few names that did performance work in this episode, though, that have worked in The Mandalorian or The Book of Boba Fett or the movies, or maybe even Obi-Wan, Kenobi, and Andor. There is 
Misty Rosas, performing as the pirate coxswain, though again, couldn't find her, but she performed as Queel and the Frog Lady. Ian Goodwin performed the part of the warthog-looking pirate, and he's worked a lot in special effect makeup. Barry Lowen performed as the Clatoonian pirate pilot, and he has appeared in many episodes of The Mandalorian. I think he's even been a stand-in for The Mandalorian. He was Garfaloquax in the Book of Boba Fett. David St. Pierre as the Trandoshan pirate pilot, an Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. stunt actor. And Carrie Jones as Gorian Shard's performance artist. And he had a very large, very, very large role in the Book of Boba Fett because he was Black Kersantan. Interestingly enough, after the Disney Plus snap, we immediately head into previously on territory. First, it's IG-11 destroying himself at the end of the first season in the lava flow. We then hear and see Mando interacting with Grief Karga, and we see the school that was set up in the old cantina back in season two. Then we see Bo-Katan taking off her helmet in the Eris episode, and Din Djarin is chastising her. She tells him he's a child of the Watch, which she considers a cult, and he says there's only one way, the way of the Mandalore, which as we understand is the leader of the Mandalorian people. Then we see him removing his helmet at the end of Season 2 for Grogu, and hear the armorer exiling him from their order because of his admission of this. That scene, though, came in the Book of Boba Fett, a whole other series. She tells him he has to atone according to Creed, not Adonis or Apollo Creed, but by the Mandalorian Creed, in the living waters beneath the mines of Mandalore. Then we see the flashback scene of the Night of a Thousand Tears that she described in that same Book of Boba Fett episode of Thai bombers turning the surface of the planet to ash and glass. According to Creed, one may only be redeemed in the living waters beneath the mines of Mandalore. But the mines have all been destroyed. This is the way. The opening of the show proper starts with audio of the armorer hammering under the Star Wars and Lucasfilm sequences. Then we see the forge, and it turns out the armorer is actually at work hammering out a helmet. So this is not a flashback of Din Djarin's ceremony. It's not for Grogu. It's for a young boy from Clan Vizsla. We know this because when the covert comes out of the cave, one of the banners marching forth is from Clan Vizsla. There are other banners there too, but I couldn't make them out, and as you may have heard in my First Impressions podcast, I didn't immediately recognize the Vizsla banner. I had to look that up. I admit it. The boy named Ragnar in the credits is standing in the shallows and waiting. Paz Vizsla, or the Heavy Mando from Season 1, is very prominently shown watching, you know, he's watching this ceremony. Could it be his son? Well, I would have thought that it would then have said Ragnar Vizsla in the credits, but the ceremony is cut short anyway. For the life of me, I can't see how a beast as big as that one snuck up on the group. But also, how did it just fit in that body of water at all? The kid was only up to his ankles in the shallows, and this beast is gigantic. So, suspension of disbelief aside, I thought it was some kind of turtle on the first watch. 
and the concept art looks like that was the intention. And there's certainly a lot of armored scales or a shell. I don't exactly know. The finished product, though, definitely seems to be more like a gator because it rolls in the water at one point. Also, yes, its snout is a beak in the concept art, but it's much more like a gator in the show. Even reminded me a little bit of maybe like an ankylosaur. It did seem to have like a shell-like back, and I wondered at first if it was going to be a mythosaur of Mandalorian legend, but clearly it's not. This isn't the A-Team or something like that, so the Mandalorians actually do lose one of the covert to this beast, but I expected maybe that the Mandalorian that got swallowed might have made it out from inside, but I suppose that's already been done by Mando in Season 2's opening with the Crate Dragon, so you can't reuse that on another episode that starts the season, right? I don't know if I would call these Mandalorians brave or dumb. They continue to attack this thing when it clearly wasn't working, but it did serve a purpose they couldn't have known. Din Djarin shows up in his N1 Starfighter during the fight and blasts it. Then he lands, and there's no cheering or congratulations for him. He is an apostate after all. We just get the title slate, and this episode is, surprise, called The Apostate. But that's something that Paz Vizsla called him in the Book of Boba Fett series. But the definition is a person who renounces or abandons a religious or political belief or principle. Din Djarin is looking to get back in. He's not really an apostate then, unless he will be, and this is a clue that he's going to reject the teachings he grew up knowing for something new later in the season or in the series. The next scene is back in the cave where the covert has the forge. The armor reiterates what we previously heard in the previously on. Maybe that's for viewers that skipped it, but this whole scene feels like a rehash of the Book of Boba Fett, and maybe that's for people who didn't tune in there. The difference now is that Mando has a piece of glass with etchings on it. The armorer says that's proof that the surface was bombed to glass, like she said, but there are etchings on this piece of glass, so that doesn't work. The etchings are in Mandoa, the same script and language that we saw Boba Fett's chain code in during Chapter 14. Thankfully, someone else translated it. A general Anubis on Twitter with the help of Mandoa Lessons of YouTube. So it's a Bible verse. Yes, the Bible. It's parts. It's not the whole thing. <laughs> it's parts of Exodus 10, 5, and 6. And that kind of fits with the Mandalorians being like the Jews, being scattered, kept from the Promised Land. But it's the Bible in Star Wars. Now, I don't think we're really supposed to know it, because if all of this happened a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, well, we're going to have some time travel going on here. Instead, it's just a cool Easter egg, and it's not the whole thing. It's just a parts of the, uh, of the script, like it was broken off in the middle of this larger passage. Mando again asks if he can be redeemed, also biblical, and the armorer agrees, but it's more like, yeah, you know, if you can pull 
off a miracle, <clears throat> Bible, then you were redeemed, sure. I'm paraphrasing, of course. If I visit the planet and I can bring you proof that I have bathed in the living waters beneath the mines of Mandalore, then by creed, the decree of exile will be lifted and I would be redeemed. This is the way. And I will see you again. Next, we cut to Mando and Grogu in the N1 in hyperspace. It's a nice ride scene showing Grogu marveling at light speed. Now, it's been talked about in Star Wars, but never explained except in Rebels, the animated show. If you watched, you know those creatures Grogu can see that help the first people to use hyperspace lanes, those are Purgle. And yes, they're kind of like a whale-squid hybrid, and they feed on gas planets, can travel through hyperspace without any help. If you want to know more, you're going to have to probably watch or read up on Rebels. But if they're going to discuss them more, I guarantee you they're going to explain it better. Because I have a strong feeling that these are going to figure in either later this season or in the Ahsoka series. So there will be some explanation coming in live action. Just know, this wasn't something cooked up just for this show. This has been coming for some time now. The N1 comes out of hyperspace above Navarro, and on the approach there is an air traffic control droid that mentions it's an independent trade anchor and outer rim hyperlane port. The walk from the port to the center of town is a peaceful one for Din Djarin. They see lots of things that have changed for the better Din and Grogu. And we saw a little improvement last season when they visited. But now there are children running about. People seem to have tamed and domesticated those bat beasts. The ones that injured Grief Karga in season one at the end. The Kowakian monkey lizards were on spits and in cages. And now they're just free in the trees. There's a folk band playing jaunty tunes in the town square as a protocol droid extolling the virtues of lava pools and geothermal springs and i saw what looked a lot like a convor perched on the statue of ig11 i know it's probably not a convor but for those of you wondering a convor is closely associated with ahsoka so if it's not that creature I don't know why they just didn't use the character model for the Bat Beast things. These are definitely not the same ones as the one that was perched on the shoulder or the ones that attacked. I, I thought for sure. I was 100% sure it was a Convor. But no one else on Star Wars Twitter seemed to think so. It makes me think that I'm wrong. Maybe if some people were commenting on it, but no one seems to have noticed. No one seems to come to a similar conclusion as me, so... For now, it's just a creature on a statue. Might as well just be a pigeon. <laughs> a Star Wars pigeon. Mando is greeted by Grief Karga, who is glad to see him, and they do the Predator Dutch and Dylan forearm grab handshake style thing that they always do, and they head into the High Magistrate's office. It's a fun bit. Karga is inflating his office, but it's a lot better saying High Magistrate than Disgraced Magistrate like Moff Gideon once mentioned in the same area. 
Karga offers land and wonders, you know, why do you still have Grogu? Because he finished his quest and Grogu is forced spinning in a chair and forced pulling candy off the table. Mando mentions now he's an apostate. So this is, again, rehashing, you know, what happened at the end of the last episode. You let, you know, Grogu go with Luke. But it sounds like there's even a better reason to stay for Karga, but the protocol droid interrupts this discussion, and there's trouble in town, Sheriff. Magistrate. High Magistrate. Yes, High Magistrate. Apologies. Your timing couldn't be any worse. But it's just that there's someone here to see you. It can wait. But it's pirates. Pirates in the courtyard. Get out of my way, or I'll split your circuits. Oh, my sauce. Stand aside, droid. Don't you know who we are? Come on, Vane. That'll be enough of that. Okay, so maybe I should have said it's trouble in town, Captain? Because <laughs> it's not bandits, it's pirates. They're trying to get into the old cantina, which is now a school, remember? And there is a protocol droid teacher blocking the way. Now, this is not the best writing here. Because, look, if the pirates wanted in, they'd have gone in. Except they do know it's not a cantina anymore. So they're just causing trouble, which we know from context. The writing makes it actually seem like they do want in, but for what? Well, it's to start trouble. I mean, that's the only logical explanation. Karga knows them, or specifically the leader of this group. They know it's a school. He keeps trying to defuse the situation. Karga does. Mando is just looking on, coolly leaning against a tree. But Vane definitely wants to start trouble and... Keeps insisting, I want a drink. He's testing Karga. Couple things to notice. Grogu does not close his pram. In the past, whenever there was trouble, he would close it. He's past that. Second, Karga does not even once ask Din Djarin for help. Vane says he went soft, but everything Karga does in the scene shows he's diplomatic, but in no way soft. Also, Karga waits for Vane to make a move, then draws and is fast enough not only to shoot first, but accurate enough to blast that pistol right from his hands. Karga doesn't even want to detain them. He sends them back to Gorin Shard, the Pirate King, with a warning. Well, he tries to, because the rest of the group gets shot dead by Mando and Karga when they try to act. Mando even mentions the danger of letting him go. Get out of here, Vane. No. Sure you want to let him go? You'll let it be known that Navarro is respectable now, and not to be trifled with. But as Jacob Dutton might say in 1923, he wants fear to outweigh greed so they don't come back. We know that's probably not in the cards, especially since we've seen the trailer footage. It's kind of what you have to do, though, right? You can't just wipe them out. You have to give them a chance to stay away. On the walk back, Karga offers the position of Marshal, which confuses Mando because, wait, wasn't that Kara Cynthia Dune's job? So another thing that happened, you know, after chapter two or chapter 16, season two, and before chapter 17 is, well, Karga mentions Dune got recruited by special forces and Moff Gideon is facing a tribunal. This is a wave goodbye to Gina Carano, and honestly, I've come to terms with it. I'm not fine with it, 
because they dismissed her for something Pedro Pascal did much worse. But if they're not giving her show, it just kind of fits for the character. She wouldn't be joining up with him anyway because she'd have martial duties. And let's be honest, Carano's acting wasn't the best. So it's, again, I like the character and I like Gina Carano and I appreciate her stand. But what's done is done. Disney made a decision and they doubled and tripled down on it. It's interesting, though, to hear the explanations that Favreau writes out with both Din Djarin and Karga scoffing at the idea of Gideon seeing justice. And Karga mentions they don't want a marshal from the New Republic because it's just another far-off bureaucracy. Mando isn't interested in any of that. It turns out he's here to see if he can get IG-11 up and working again. But why? The only thing I can think of is that it's just to show that he's got growth from a guy who hated droids at the start of the very first episode of the show to one that now is choosing to rely on a droid. We get a scene of Mando trying to put the Scarecrow back together. <laughs> he works on him, and at first when they power on IG-11, his lights are white, but he's spouting old dialogue, and then his lights go red. That's Always a bad sign in Star Wars. And he tries to grab Grogu. He's talking about terminating the asset. The droid drags itself across the floor. No legs. Kind of looks like a zombie. Almost. He's seemingly unstoppable. Mando has to toss Grogu to Karga. And IG-11 follows the target. But it is the copper protocol droid saving the day. He pushes a bust of Karga onto the droid, shutting it down. Now that's using your head. I think he defaulted to his old programming. You think? It seems blowing up wiped out Queel's reprogramming efforts. So without an Ugnaught, it's going to probably be dicey if they try to reactivate this IG unit again, right? Well, Karga says Navarro has attracted some of the galaxy's best droidsmiths. Who? The Ancelans. What do you want? I loved this next scene, and I think most people did too. They might have been one of the best parts of The Rise of Skywalker, and they don't have to be Babu Freak to be adorable. The Anzellans are fantastic. I love the bit where Mando asks, do you, you know, do you speak Hades? Then Karga chimes in over and over again, translating obvious dialogue. It worked. I liked... Mando sitting crisscross applesauce in the cramped workshop. I like the Anzellan humor. They're not friend anymore. <laughs> Memories And Grogu grabbing that one. We're not sure. Is, is he in love with this little creature? Does he want to give it a hug, a squeezy? Or does he want to eat it? It was just amazing. Great, great scene. Can you fix it without the memory circuit? Yes, but... What if I find you the part? Okay, now, then no problem. We did. If you can get a new part, he says he can fix it. No! No, 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 no. Not a pet. No, it's crazy! Not crazy, not Bad baby. Sorry about that. He's young. No, Grogu. Okay, so now he has to go find a part, another quest. And I wonder, who finds a lot of hard-to-get parts that we know of? So, we're going to Tatooine next, right? 
Pelimato and the Jawas? Well, no. First they have to leave, and when they lift off, it sounds more like the revving of a car engine than a spacecraft, but these are the hot rods of Star Wars after all. And when they're flying out, Grogu gets some flying lessons. Very Star Warsy, And I wonder if these are going to pay off later this season, maybe next season, or not at all. It's a nice parental bonding moment. Like a lot of scenes in this episode, though, it's and it ends up being cut short with an interruption. Pirate fighter craft are incoming. It's a space battle. Our first of the season among asteroids, and it's a good one. I, I liked it a lot. I liked the chase back to Goring Shard's ship and how it seems like they got him. I also like that Goring Shard offers to spare him, but I especially like Mando's response to him. Surrender your ship and I'll spare your life. Kid, never trust a pirate. Indeed, it's almost something that you might have heard, ironically, out of Hondo Anaka's mouth at one point. Traitors. Scum! I'm so proud. But so betrayed. During the space battle, we end up hearing a dank ferric, and we saw some asteroid mines. I definitely want to know more about those mining facilities, but we're probably never going to find out. It's just cool background stuff. And the next scene, we hear Din Jaren talk about the planet that they're approaching. It's not Tatooine. It's Kalevala, and that is the home to the Kree's family, or at least I think that's where Satine and Bo-Katan are both from. That's something you'd probably have to have seen Clone Wars or Rebels for. Mando mentions a Mandalorian castle, and we see it, and it's impressive. The banners inside are of the Night Owls, which is the group that Bo-Katan led after she left the corrupted Death Watch that Darth Maul led when he had the Darksaber. She's moping on the throne, and I gotta say, the way she's sitting on the throne so lazily is interesting. It's not leader-like, but as she mentions, there's no one left to lead. She doesn't have the saber. No one really cares to follow her. They know who has it, right? It's Din Djarin, and he's not interested in rallying people together. At least, he hasn't been interested yet. First, he introduces himself on the walk toward her. She should know him, and she does. But this formality probably only makes her pout more. She's probably only annoyed with him even more now. And also, he wants to join her, he says. Join what? She asks rhetorically, even the two we saw her with in season two have gone off to be mercenaries. Like, what do you want to join? At least that's the way it appears that she's all alone. Only a droid greeted Jaren at the landing pad. He's walking all the way to the throne unimpeded. She whines about how his cult was one of the reasons that her people are scattered. But, uh, she's to blame probably more so. But this is just the mood that she's in. She tells him, go home. There's nothing left. But he's got a quest. He's going to Mandalore to bathe in those waters and be forgiven. Despite her seesawing on whether the planet was poisoned or not. She just calls him a fool. But at least she tells him where to go. And look, we, we had that Bible verse in a piece of glass earlier. It's not She's not telling him to go to H-E double hockey sticks. She's giving him directions to the mines. 
You can find them in the capital of Sundari under the Civic Center. I guess that's something that she would know. But if he didn't, it couldn't have been the first thing on the minds of all Mandalorians. And this is like an ancient custom, right? And his cult, as she calls it, are zealots. So why didn't they just tell him where to go? I mentioned before I thought it was weird that he went here first. Because if he was getting the band back together, I would have thought you go to Tatooine first. That's your first stop. You get the droid working, you're all ready to go, and then you go ask for directions, right? But no. The visit to Bo-Katan is over, and so is the first episode of Season 3. If you want to go to the mines, be my guest. They're beneath the Civic Center in the city of Sundari. Thank you. And I will find out if the planet is really poisoned. Goodbye, Dinjarin. So, what did you think? When I first saw the episode, I loved it. Then I entered into some Twitter conversations, and I must admit, I think I've cooled off on how great the episode was, but it's mostly because it was super short, and only slightly because the writing for Andor was so on point that this episode, by comparison, ends up being weaker. Hey, I, I still liked it. I liked it a lot. It's just not one of the top five episodes for me anymore, even though I was pretty high on it on Wednesday. But what do you think? Do you disagree? I was hoping to do a feedback episode of the podcast to hear what listeners have to say, but our engagement is way down since the last episode of season two. It never really recovered with the quality of the other shows in the interim. Book of Boba Fett, Obi-Wan Kenobi, and then Andor was, I think, was one of the best Star Wars shows on TV, but it just didn't have great involvement from the fans. I hope this new season of The Mandalorian turns things back around, but you're going to have to participate if I'm going to have another episode to do each week. Please send feedback, thoughts, ideas, comments to thisisthewaypodcast at gmail.com. You can also visit our Linktree site at linktr.ee forward slash thisisthewaypod. You'll find This Is The Way Podcast on Twitter and Instagram at thisisthewaypod or on facebook.com at slash this is the way pod, and we're on YouTube now too. Please consider subscribing all everywhere. Like our posts, like our content. Please leave positive reviews whenever you do on whatever podcast distributor you're using. All of that does help grow the audience, it makes things better all the way around. Thank you for joining me today for This Is The Way Podcast's reaction and discussion of The Apostate. Season 3, Episode 1, Chapter 17 of The Mandalorian. I'm your host, Steve Lascalzo, and this is the way. May the Force be with you, always. Always.